If you would, please turn in your Bibles here, or at home, to the book of Philippians. I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Father, let us hear Paul's heart. For you gave him that heart. Let us hear his thoughts. Let us know that his thoughts here are your thoughts. That they become ours. Now in the times in which we live more than ever. Do it, Lord. Do it for us and for your glory. I ask, amen. Amen. Life is filled and ought to be filled, is meant to be filled with many good tasks ministries, parenting is crucial. Doing marriage well is crucial. Being a good church member is crucial. Social movements are crucial to fight against the legal killing of babies in the womb is a good thing. To fight against illegal sex trafficking is good. There are hundreds of movements, ministries, social action to do in this world. And God leads us to one or another, to very many of the smaller, which are usually the most crucial in life. But they all come with a warning. Just a big warning level label upon everything we set our hand to do in this world. And that warning says to Christians, danger. Look out for the danger of pushing the gospel to the periphery of what you're called to. The danger of pushing the gospel to the periphery of your life, of your local church's life. This passage this morning is a call to never let that happen. So here's the point of the sermon. Keep the gospel, the core of the gospel, central. Keep it clear. Never assume. Keep it articulated in your mind, in your words, in your life, and keep it loved by your heart. Okay. Last week, remember, we have already seen verses 12 to 14 where Paul makes this large general statement that through his suffering... All the things that he has gone through in the previous years up until the very moment he's writing as he's still imprisoned, awaiting trial. He says, all of this, dear Philippians, has worked to actually spread and advance the gospel. And he gave two examples, one in verse 13. The whole imperial guard who's in charge of prisoners in Rome 
For Nero, the Caesar, has heard the gospel. Example number two. As I get here, the church has already been planted years earlier. And many of these Christians, by my imprisonment, are now less timid, less fearful, more bold in the face of persecution to preach the gospel. Nevertheless, what we see this morning is Paul's a realist. He knows that not all Christians there in Rome feel that way about him. Once in a while, I hear Christians say, if we can just get back to the first century church, oh man, they were so holy and so, who would be awesome? They don't read their Bible. I mean, there is hardly a problem in the church world today that did not exist in Paul's churches. Corinth was filled with divisiveness. I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul. Paulus, I'm an Apollos man. I'm more holy than all of you. I just, I just listen to Christ, not them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 to tell them, there's so many of you in this church who were still babies. You can't handle more than just milk. And this is a shame. There was a church member committing fornication with his stepmom. There were people getting drunk during communion service. And here, as Paul's in Rome writing, the church in Rome had its problems. There were those in the church in Rome who preached with a motivation of rivalry with Paul. A motivation of hoping to make Paul's experience in Rome while he's in prison more miserable than it already was. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So just first, who are these preachers? Who are these preachers who preach with such motives? First thing to say is this. They were not, and Paul did not consider them to be, heretics. They are not preaching a perverted, false gospel. How do I know that? Because if, if they were, Paul would never say what he says about them and the message they preach. He would never say, what then? That there are many who are preaching with ulterior motives to afflict me, inflict me. What about their message? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I, Paul, rejoice. But when it comes to those who twist the actual gospel, which these men were not doing, or they pervert the actual message of the gospel, we know what Paul would say. He's already said it. Years earlier, he wrote to the Galatians these words in Galatians 1, 6-9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some preachers who trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let them be damned. That's what Paul says about heretics. Paul would never say about those preachers who were infiltrating the churches of Galatia. Oh well, we don't quite agree on everything, but I praise God the gospel's being preached by them. That's not what he would say. The Judaizers infiltrating the church of Galatia so perverted the content of the gospel by adding one thing. Works of the law in order to be saved. Oh, they preached. And in their words of preaching, they preached that Jesus from Nazareth is the promised Messiah. He suffered and died on the cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead and He ascended. And you can be saved, even you Gentiles. Now, you can be saved if you put your faith in Him, plus adding to that faith Jewish works of the law. In order to be saved. And when they did that, that made that gospel they preached no gospel at all. And that's why Paul's point to the Galatians is get rid of these men. Don't listen to them. Don't welcome them into your homes, into your Bible studies, into your worship services. Don't listen to them. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote, Years earlier, he had no problem saying exactly what he meant when he said this in chapter 11, verse 4. If someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That was sarcasm. That they were giving ear to such things. And he goes on to say, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So, got to get it. Paul is not at all open to commending every preacher who lets the word Jesus fall off their lips. And they show some form of piety. Paul wants to know which Jesus are you preaching? Which gospel? We in today's church world must constantly ask when you hear the name Jesus being preached whether it is the Jesus of the Mormons, an unbiblical Jesus, a Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses, it's a different Jesus. A Jesus of legalism, which has been rampant for hundreds of years in the church world as a whole and is today. They, yeah, Jesus saves, and he saves you by your faith plus your works and your sacraments that you must maintain. Is he the Jesus of the social gospel? Is that what's being preached? Or is it the biblical Jesus? Is the gospel that Paul rejoices in being preached? So the fact that Paul can say in chapter 1 of Philippians verse 18, even though their motives are messed up, nevertheless, the gospel is preached. That shows that these men were not heretics. 
They were not dangerous, false teachers. If they had been, Paul would have exposed them. Just like he will expose such false teachers a few paragraphs down in Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Look at that for a second. He warns the Philippians about others who, their message, it preaches Jesus, but there's some twist in it. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh and want to force you Gentile Christians to be circumcised. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so these, these preachers that Paul is talking about in chapter 1 they're Christians. They're Christians who got the gospel right. But they're anti-Paul. They preach with anti-Paul motives because they got filled with jealousy. When he came to town in chains, he's famous. He's Paul. The people know him. They've had his letter for a couple years there in Rome. Paul's never been to Rome. Didn't plant that church. He's there. They don't like it that Paul has done damage to the church in their minds, giving Christianity a bad name by being jailed and on trial. So Paul lets them know Philippians is what's happening. Some indeed here preach Christ from envy into rivalry. They proclaim Christ at a selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Christians preached Christ, true gospel, from bad motives. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Envy refers to their jealousy of Paul. No one came close to grasping the whole counsel of God, the scripture and the gospel, as well as the Apostle Paul. No one was as prolific in missionary endeavors as Paul. And so it created with some of these, when he came to town, who were already preachers, elders, Rivalry felt threatened and it arose in their hearts. And so Paul says they preached out of a motive. It's not sincere in this, meaning it's not they don't believe the gospel, but they just bad motives in, in the ways they wanted to do it and how they wanted Paul. This is what I think he means. How they wanted to evangelize within the church. Because they're getting jealous that many people They've been preaching to. We're so excited about Paul. And Paul's got freedom. He's, he's welcoming people to his apartment. And they get eaten up with jealousy to try to persuade. The gospel's clear, but there's some other things going on behind of drawing away disciples and evangelizing in such a way to let Paul know, to let Paul know, to let Paul would know, that Paul would know, and it would cause him torment, bug the heck out of him. That's what I, I that's, that's my best guess of what Paul is saying, not sincerely, but seeking to, to cause, inflict me, affect me as I sit chained up here in Rome. So, how does Paul handle it? Is he hurt? Is he wounded by it? Is the answer to that. No, duh. <laughs> He's just like us. A sinner. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Who has to battle. If you prick Paul, he bleeds like we bleed. He feels. And yet we look at what he wrote. Because Paul knows 
the way that he chose to handle this, there's a lesson for the Philippian church. And the lesson he gives in verse 18 is that the gospel is first. It's last. It's central. If the gospel is getting out through broken people, which is all of us, and some more broken than the others, if the gospel is getting out, his message is take a punch for Jesus. Exalt the gospel. Exalt it far above your own personal offenses and feelings. Verse 18 is Paul's response to this situation. The rival gospel preachers are preaching the gospel with motives to do Paul harm. His response, I rejoice that the gospel is being preached. His message is, Philippians, Christians, don't take yourself so seriously. Take the gospel seriously. Don't be easily offended, but defend the gospel at all costs. The gospel is central, not just for Paul, but for the Philippian church and for all of us Christians today. The gospel is to be at the center of our lives. All of it. Not merely first in a line of succeeding obligations and responsibilities and aspirations. Oh no. It is to be central in the midst of all of them. Life is filled with busyness and responsibility and rightfully so. We gotta work. You gotta earn money. Got to feed yourself and your family. You have to serve others, love other Christians, and do practical ministry works. At times you got to go to school, you got to get educated, you got to get married, you get children, you have to raise them. You get older, you get grandchildren. You want to and should visit them. There are so many good things in life. And as I began the sermon, there's a danger sign constantly. The danger is whether we let these things, my marriage, my child rearing. I've watched this for years at times. It always baffled me. Children have come. Christ and the church put to the side. Gotta love little Joey. Mind-boggling. There's always a danger of allowing those good things to squeeze the gospel and what it's producing and meant to produce in the life of you, the Christian. To squeeze it out to the periphery. If not choked out altogether. In our lives, in our families, in our local churches, in our denominations, in our universities. So by the center, keeping it center, what I, one way to say it in the negative is this. Be careful to never assume the gospel. Don't ever assume it. Seek to constantly for yourself for your unbelieving relatives and friends and workmates and in the local church, let it constantly be articulated clearly. It is the power of God to salvation and nothing else. 
is. So here's the danger of every Christian family, every local church, every denomination, every Christian university. There's an old saying, I don't know who did it, but you've all heard it, and I'll just say it again. I didn't create it, but boy, do I know it to be true. Is that here's one generation, whether it's a church, a denomination, a, 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 a new theological seminary, it doesn't matter. The, here's the first generation loves the gospel. They're gospel-centered, and that creates ministries. It creates a culture, and how they may do church, and liturgy, etc. It creates Something that is not the gospel, but flows from the gospel. And it's all good. It creates a, a moral customs within those people. Because the gospel is not assumed. It is central. And then the next generation assumes the gospel. And, and all of those things that it created, oh, they're still there. The songs are still there. The liturgy is still there. The, the moral customs are still there. And then the third generation denies. The gospel. Oh yeah, all the religious and the cultural customs remain and get reinterpreted. Don't miss me when I say by deny the gospel. Oh, they invoke the name of Jesus. Of course, you have to. Everyone in the world, even other religions, you want to be positive toward Jesus. It's very beneficial, that name. change it. We preach the social gospel. Our passage this morning, it really forces the question, what is it that really drives the true church? What drives the true Christian? Is it that which the gospel creates? Is that what drives you? Or is it the gospel itself? And they're not the same. For Paul, it was the gospel. He would much rather have those who disliked him preach the true gospel than have those who are really friendly and nice to him twist it. There are tons of subgroups of Christians that the gospel creates and Christians create and they're goods like the pro-life Movement which is predominantly driven by Jesus-loving Christians. Ought to be. Anti-pornography. Horrific killer in our society today. And within the church. Good. Attack it. The homeschooling movement over the last 30 years was mainly driven by Christian people. Good. Anti-sex trafficking. Legal injustices, you become a lawyer and you donate a lot of time and people donate a lot of money to, to deal with religious freedom issues. Fantastic! All of that really is. But we must always continue to do a diagnostic on ourselves and on our groups. Am I? Is my church, is this particular Ministry, assuming the gospel. Is the gospel the center? The center of my life, the center of what I'm doing, the center of my marriage, the center of how I parent, the center of this women's or men's Bible study. This outreach is it the center? We should never be tired of that question. History has shown that the centrality 
and the clarity of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, it will so powerfully work in those persons being saved that social activism is inevitable. Yes, and that's biblical. Like William Wilberforce, who for decades, decades of getting nowhere, persisted in the English Parliament in the late 1700s, early 1800s, for decades to get the slave trade industry abolished. And finally, he did. The first great awakening in this country, this, this sovereign outpouring of God, the Holy Spirit, in clear gospel preaching, Back in the 1740s. The effects of that were masses of already church-going people who were not saved getting saved and others getting saved. There was an unprecedented sovereign move of God and the effects of that gospel-centeredness created true, serious Christians who were led to social activism like the abolition of slavery in America. The reform of penal codes and the transform of the horrific things that would go on in prisons and to free children from, from mines and laboring in mines all day as kids. It, it leads to things. But virtually all of those movements as they began were gospel first movements. They revel in the gospel. They understood it. They didn't assume it. They preached it. They cherished it. They loved and knew their Bibles. And from that foundation, they were moved to social action. But when the gospel, in its clear biblical meaning, slowly tends to be assumed with now it's just all boiled down to nothing more than Jesus loves you. Never delving into why or how what did he actually do that I may be loved in forgiveness of sins and invited to eternal life? No, no. He loves you. When that happens, then we evangelicals are no more than one generation away from denying the gospel. Even though the music and the songs will still go on and the name of Jesus will still be invoked. The more the clarity and the depth of the gospel is moved to the periphery of the Christian's life, of the church's life, of the denomination's life, of the Christian university's life. The more that that happens within evangelicalism, Though many people, they're truly born again. They're going to heaven. Verse 6, chapter 1, you're going to make it. You love the Lord. And, you got, and now God's given you a spouse and children. And you raise them up in non-gospel-centered but Christian-like churches. And though you love the Lord, you wonder why. When so many, too large of a percent, when they turn 20, and 22 or far gone. And many, many of these children of true Christians were deceived by their parents and by the local church because they're told they're Christians and they baptize them. And they were no more Christians than a hole in the wall because the gospel was assumed and watered down. They grew up in churches and had friends and family and it's fun. And most of their growing up, they were segregated. 
from adults. Putting group after group. High school, really important time to make sure you, you keep them. Of course Jesus is invoked. But we want all of their friends they can invite to to come. So let's, let's concentrate on that. And they graduate high school, never having a conversation with an adult on any regular basis about deep gospel, soul, theological issues. Gospel wasn't centered, which gives a worldview. Which lets them know what's happening in the world before they go to the university. But many of them, the parents never did it. Never had the discussions in a deep way about the glory of God. About sin. And their sin nature. About the judgment of God which will bring wrath on their souls. Without Christ. They never had deep conversations that God himself poured out His wrath upon His Son on a cross. His holy, righteous anger. They didn't have discussions about the effectual call of God to sinners that brings them alive to see these truths. They never had discussions about what saving faith biblically looks like It's like, a, like the frog in the kettle, right? You, you don't boil water and say, let's cook the frog now. You'll jump right out. You warm the water up. Ooh, feels good. You put the frog in. The frog likes it. You slowly turn up the heat. The frog's still liking it. Just slow. Until the frog turns up dead. The seeker-sensitive gospel light churches seem to work. Until God turns up the heat of persecution to bring clarity. And they turn up dead. Like when through the back door in this country, marriage was redefined through the court system. Now you can't avoid it. Where do you stand on homosexual sexual activity? And we're seeing a purification. Where many gospel people think, I knew that. I knew that. If they were forced, they would come to that unbiblical conclusion. Do not be shamed. We can go on and on. Trust me. Division is growing and it will continue to grow. And there will be demands for you pastors to preach to your people that because you're white, you are by definition in America a racist and you must admit it as a good Christian. not the gospel and what all of that is based upon the worldview that that is based upon the group think as opposed to the individual accountability of sin that is pushing this is confusing people and it confuses the gospel what unites us as Christians is to be replaced by nothing but the gospel. Ever. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, 
bad motive or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing because the news is being proclaimed. The gospel, euangelion, means good news. That's why he's rejoicing. So don't forget that the gospel is news. It's news that is to be reported, not just examined, not just commented on. Preach Christ means preach the news. The news comes first before doing theology. I hope you see that. Postmodernism, which is everywhere, it's a worldview. It's a worldview of relativism. It's not new. It's been around for thousands of years. It's just gained an ascendancy throughout culture, throughout the intellectual world. That worldview of postmodernism will continue to try to break into the church and Christian universities and theological seminaries. This worldview is antithetical to the news, to the gospel, because it denies objective truth. It denies truth claims. It denies stating clearly fact. It denies propositional truth claims. And the gospel is by definition propositional. It is declarative statements of fact. Christianity is about something. It's not merely someone's ideas. There were real historical events. A child was born of a virgin. After preaching, teaching for a few years, with miraculous healings in public, there was a trial. There was a crucifixion and a death. There was a bodily human resurrection from the dead and an ascension into heaven. And then there was an explosion of news telling. Gospel, Isaac. Hear ye, hear ye, what the king says. And we have news, therefore, that is better than a cure for cancer. If we believe it, we'll tell it. And, and I beg you, Christians, because it's so easy to do this while you're talking to a mom or a dad or a brother or sister or cousin or a friend, to just, if you really went back and looked at what you told them when, they, when you were in a conversation where, get the gospel right, you'd be amazed at how much we just don't even say what's clearly important. Unbelievers need to hear the gospel or they can't be saved. The church 
True Christians need to feed upon the news and never get bored with it. You have. I have. When we are, take it as the doctor giving you a diagnosis of something's going wrong with your heart right now. Your life. Check it. We need to feed upon the gospel. Oh, theology is important. Working out the hard things. It is very important for the Christian. It's important for the church, absolutely. But the gospel is news first and foremost before it is arguments. It is arguments. It is ultimately theological. But first, it's news. If someone knows that you're a Christian and they care about what that means, make sure they know the news. Because that news is essential. It's essential whether the governor of the state of California or Los Angeles county officials say so or not. It is more essential than hospitals and abortion clinics and liquor stores. The gospel is the center of Christ's people. And it's the only hope for sinners. So, what is this news as I close then? What is the news that Paul says it is, is advancing here in Rome? What, what is this Christ who's being proclaimed that Paul rejoices in. It starts with, there is a God who created the universe. And He is perfectly holy, beautiful, righteous, good, and truth. And is always. And the human race Represented by Adam and Eve in the garden, rebelled. And through and in them, all of us, all humanity, rebelled against the Creator and His holiness and His goodness and His righteousness. And that means that every individual person is a sinner. The one you're talking to at that moment. Cut off from God's good graces. And that impending wrath. Judicial punishment. Hangs. Over them. And will be enacted on a future Judgment day for every soul who's ever lived. And the good news is that this God became a human being in order to save sinners like you, like me, from our deserved, unending Eternal punishment. How? This man, Jesus, as our substitute, took upon himself the wrath of God. The judgment of God against us who were born as sinners and under condemnation. That Jesus the only human being who was without sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We, we are that. We are made right with God. We are justified by God through His blood. God brought us back to Him, reconciled us to Himself. 
through that blood, and therefore there is now no condemnation for any person who is in Christ Jesus. Oh, get yourself in to Christ. Why? Because the just, the perfectly righteous one, Jesus, has died for the unjust in order to bring us to his Father. This Jesus who was Lord of the universe has been raised from the dead after that death indestructibly. Human resurrection and he never, ever, ever, ever will die again. And nor can he in any way be defeated. And the way for you to be saved by him is not by you doing, working, earning, changing yourself. It is by seeing what was just said and believing, loving, by faith alone. Your heart is opened up to see the beauty, the treasure that this Lord Jesus is, that this news is. And that you trust that promise that never in all of human history in the wildest imaginations of any creative artist could ever conceive the greatness of what God has prepared for those who love him and believe in his eternal son. For that son, that resurrected man, now ascended, will return and he will bodily raised from the dead all who are his and usher them into an unending room after room after room of visibility and joy in the very presence of who God is to them in mercy forever. That's the news. There's a lot of things come out of that news. Don't forget the news. Don't assume the news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the news. The greatest news ever. The euangelion. The gospel. The good Thank you for your son. May we in our closing time here and in our homes revel together in the presence of your spirit over this good news to the glory of your glorious son.